Have mercy on me, O Lord, Son of David. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. It was our privilege yesterday to gather to participate in the ordination to the priesthood of our friend Lauren Larkin. Ordination services are, are always exceedingly special to me. And every once in a while, some words from the ordination service will, will strike me, especially um, tellingly. Yesterday, I was, I was hit by the words in the examination of the ordinance that, where the bishop reminds the ordinance and the rest of us. All baptized people are called to make Christ known as Savior and Lord and to share in the renewing of his world. I found that last phrase especially arresting because I'd had haunting images in my head all week from Charlottesville, Virginia. To share in the renewing of his world. I had a very um, southern upbringing including too many unfortunate parts of growing up white in the South. And I went to college in Williamsburg, Virginia, just down the road from Charlottesville, and it's a very pleasant memories of playing baseball at, um, at the University of Virginia. And last Saturday's events hit pretty hard. Sometimes things need to be said subtly, and with nuance, and sometimes they need to be said forcefully. One thing that needs to be said, brothers and sisters, neo-Nazi and fascist sloganeering, anti-Jewish and white supremacist rhetoric, obscene, unmasked Ku Klux Klan saluting, and a weaponized car are absolutely incompatible with anything that you and I believe. Followers of Christ, it seems to me, have a duty in the first place to state clearly that racist nationalism like this is wrong, period. No further qualification needed. But more, followers of Christ have an obligation to step more deeply into the Bibles and into our story's vision for the way that God is about renewing the world that he loves and calls us to love too, and to ask how we may take our share in that renewal. How may we, if I may put it in Isaiah's terms, how may we maintain justice and do what is right? How may we, how may we be foreigners who join themselves to the Lord and take our place alongside the outcasts of Israel in God's house of prayer for all peoples? In Jesus' controversy 
with Jewish leaders over the washing of hands, he makes the point that the best attempts to ensure external obedience to God's commandments shipwreck against the stubbornness of the human heart. It's not what goes into us that makes us dirty. It's what comes out. In Mark's account of this story, Mark will clarify something that would have been important to his mentor, Peter, who will look back on this event with the point of view of his encounter with the angel on Simon the Tanner's roof in Joppa in Acts 10 in mind. God in Christ makes all foods clean. For his part, though, Matthew sees a deeper truth. All people are unclean. All people are necessarily manipulators of any circumstances to benefit themselves. All people have this amazing ability to use God talk to mask self-interest. All people, not to make the point any more finely than Jesus himself does, all people have hearts that spew stuff that is far more foul than what passes through into chamber pots and sewer systems. Until, and this is the important term, until we see the futility of our attempts to fix ourselves and our world, until we see our condition for what it really is and ask for mercy and help from outside ourselves. Enter the Canaanite woman. Now, first of all, we need to understand the geography of the situation. You'll recall that back in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus had sent his disciples on an initial mission inside Israel. Now, just for the sake of helping, you get a, helping us get a picture, let's pretend this room is a map. Israel proper would be the gospel side of the room. That's the River Jordan right there. And I'm at the north end up in Galilee, and Jerusalem's back there. Y'all over here, sorry, you're in Gentile territory. And as I look out, it's only fitting. <laughs> but Moab, Syria, yeah, y'all are over there. Jesus tells the disciples in Matthew 10, go nowhere among the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans who are, they're, they're living, well, I, like here, like sort of in the, sorry, but no, that going to the house of Israel means some of you even in Israel are like not, no, sorry. But go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. There and there only were they to proclaim the good news of the coming of the kingdom, to cure the sick, raise the dead, 
cleanse lepers and cast out demons. But you and I know what the disciples don't yet know, that the Jesus of Matthew's gospel has a larger interest. We know that Matthew begins his gospel with the Magi coming from the east, Persia, probably modern-day Iran, somewhere over in the St. James Cathedral parking lot. And we know that Matthew ends his gospel with the Great Commission. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations. Meanwhile, right after the mission to only the lost sheep of Israel, we know that Matthew says that Jesus is ordering silence as he withdraws from a widely public ministry, as he withdraws into a smaller private ministry for a season, is a signal of his larger intentions because Matthew quotes the servant song of Isaiah 42. Here is my servant whom I've chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will pour my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not break a bruised reed or quench a smoldering wick until he brings justice to victory and in his name, the Gentiles will hope. Now, here we are in chapter 15. Having just stressed the universality of the wretched condition of all people's hearts, Jesus brings his disciples on what will prove to be a long journey into Gentile territory. Here he goes looking for bruised reeds and smoldering wicks outside Israel. For he, friends, is determined to bring hope to the Gentiles. The journey begins here, Tyre and Sidon. Tyre and Sidon are in southern Lebanon, which are going to be about the door that you come in from the, from the gospel side of the ambulatory. The journey will take him to Caesarea Philippi, which is north of where we are, about where the preacher's seat is, also in Gentile territory. And then the journey will swing east into the Galan Heights, which now finally we're including y'all. Mary's Chapel, yeah, and even the Lamadou McCarty duo over there. will swing east into the Galan Heights where he will minister among the ten cities, the Decapolis. And then just before re-entering Israel, just before he crosses back over the River Jordan, he will feed the 4,000 and he will see his disciples collect seven baskets of leftovers. Seven baskets. Commentators note, suggestive of the seven nations that had been dispossessed when Joshua's army, army conquered the promised land. 
Matthew 15, 21. Jesus withdraws. Same verb that, he, that Matthew used back in chapter 12 when Jesus went on retreat to be, keep things quiet. Jesus withdraws to the region of Tyre and Sidon. Up in this resort town, or a couple of towns in southern Lebanon. And then the Bible says, Behold! A Canaanite woman of that region comes out and cries, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is tormented by a demon. An ethnic Canaanite, her ancestral deities would have been gods and goddesses of storm and fertility. Her daughter, now abandoned to a storm of demonic evil, she somehow recognizes in Jesus her only hope, and she begs for mercy, loudly and longly. Perhaps she had heard hints of Israel's stories of a redeeming and rescuing God. It had, after all, been from this region Tyre, that Solomon had contracted for the cedar and the laborers to build the temple about a thousand years earlier. And before that, David had spent some of his time running from Saul in this general vicinity. And it had been from these parts that David had written some of his most poignant psalms, looking to the Lord as his only hope and deliverer. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit, Psalm 34, 18. However she's gotten there, she knows to cry out to this man for mercy. And apparently insistently to this one that she recognizes to be David's son and her Lord. Jesus' response, this is beautiful, but he did not answer a word. What's he doing? What he's doing is he's looking for his disciples' response. Do they understand the significance of the several days it has taken to get to this pagan region? Are they just on retreat? Or has the quest for bruised reeds and smoldering wicks among the Gentiles begun? Are they here to begin the ministry of hope for the Gentiles? Well, that is it is. They just think they're on retreat. Send her away, for she keeps shouting after us. Please hear his next words, not as some puzzling ethnic slur, but as the holy irony that it is. Remember, it's taken them days to get here to the pagan coast from the Jewish heartland, and it will be weeks 
before their excursion in alien territory ends. Well, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Right. See the messianic eye roll. She certainly does and goes with it. Lord, help me. Virtually echoing any number of David's psalms. Jesus, seeing she gets it, responds, Well, it's not fair to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs. Like he hasn't come precisely to bring a feast to those his fellow country folk write off as unworthy. She totally goes with it. Yes, Lord, even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. And hear the belly laugh that he and she share as he says, Woman, great is your faith. Let it be done for you as you wish. And her daughter is healed from that moment. The takeaways here are several. One, Jesus doesn't love just me and my clan. He's creating a house of prayer from among the outcasts of Israel and the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord. What that means for you, go figure it out. Two, We don't get what he's up to until we sense our own need to cry to God for mercy for ourselves and those we love. And three, as we look, as we look with incomprehensibility around ourselves at people who don't get it, we should perhaps recall Jesus' patience while he waits for his disciples to figure it out, not forcing insight that's not ready yet to come. And if I can take a quick glance over at Romans 11, we should perhaps recall Paul's impatience with Gentiles who think God is done with Jews. That's who Paul's writing to in Romans 11. Gentiles who say, God's working with us, and he's just, he's not interested in the Jews any longer. We should perhaps recall Paul's impatience with Gentiles who thinks God is done with Jews as he cautions them in Romans 11 not to presume on God's mercy to them. And perhaps we should recall Paul's patience with Israel torn within himself over his fellow Jews not getting what grace alone could teach him, that the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises given to Israel, they've all been pointing to the Christ himself, Christ, God over all. Paul still waits for God's mercy for them. Fourth and finally, this takeaway. We could end up in a far worse place 
than the doxology that Paul winds up with as he contemplates the mystery of the way God does his thing towards the renewing of all things of his world. For who indeed has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him to receive a gift in return? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him indeed be the glory forever. Amen.